This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. Matt, I'm excited for today because we have Emily Hamilton coming out of the United States of America. That's right. She's a research fellow and director of the Urbanity Project at Mercatus Center, George Mason University. That's right. This is going to be a, a swell episode. This is this is a great episode. And really what we, we invited Emily on to talk about was, uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the problems uh, of single family zoning in places like Vancouver and how it's exclusionary and how there's not enough housing. There's a housing crisis. Emily is looking at places across the U S that have actually rezoned all the single family zoning places like Minneapolis, where they've, uh, they've went into duplex and fourplex zoning, which has been celebrated by a lot of people. I think that, that we've had on in the past would say that's a, a smart move. Emily's saying, look, that's not actually enough. Right. And uh, and there's problems with that. So stay tuned for what those problems are. And uh, zoning might not be the answer. Before we get to our chat with Emily, Matt, we do have some stats that were just released. Um, we should talk about it. Well, yeah, this some is interesting this findings. Is the, so this is September stats, right? Yes. September was a bit of a was was a busy one. There's no question about that. For sure. For sure. Uh, my kid went back to a nanny share. 
Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Actually, yeah. I started playing tennis. It's been a, an exhausting month, but it's also been busy for the market. Yeah, yeah. The market was busy too. You started riding your, your bike smash. to work. I started riding my bike to work. I went golfing once. Yeah. Uh, what else did I do? <laughs> yeah. Finished two puzzles. Yeah. And and you're working on Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been a very busy couple weeks. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but no, it's, we, we're, we're joking. It's been busy in the market. It's been very busy in the market and we've been extremely busy. And here's some interesting stats. Right now, because if you were wondering, you know, a lot of people, and we've talked about this on the program before, but if you were kind of scratching your head and going, I wonder if this whole COVID thing has has forced many to reevaluate living in the city and maybe looking elsewhere to beautiful places to live. You can think of like secondary markets or or um, more kind of like resort homes. Right. Um, the I feel answer, like we talked, we talked a lot about Squamish earlier in the year. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and also small towns in BC, you know, your Nelsons and that sort of thing. But check out this stat. This is taken directly from the September stats. We've got the Sunshine Coast over the last six months has gone up nearly 15% home prices. Now, is that, that single family homes on the Sunshine Coast? That is residential across the board. But yeah, wow. mostly single-family homes. I wow. think there's a lot of townhomes on the Sunshine Coast as well. Um, Bowen Th- Island. Wait a second, though. That is staggering. It's yeah, staggering. That is staggering. Wow. That's a, what a lot of markets would do in like five years, right? Yeah. So like that's, a, that's, a, that's a very staggering number. Bowen Island is up 16.6% in the past six months. Think about that. So these are places basically that are commuter- to sure. Vancouver, but not commuting every day. You know, you can live on Bowen. You don't want to come in five days a week. You come in once a week. But though. yeah, once or twice a week, easy. That is incredible. Those are incredible numbers. Yeah, and I think, and I'm, I'm just curious, because I mean, I we've had clients heading to Nanaimo, to uh, the area around Nanaimo, like uh, your Qualcomm Beach kind of location. Yeah. Um, we've also had clients going to uh, Victoria and, and kind of surrounding areas as well. So um you, you see a lot of people going to Vancouver Island. I would imagine that that market's on fire too. We should definitely uh, bring somebody on to talk about what's happening there. Yeah, good idea. Um, but really, like, just think of that. Sunshine Coast, Bowen Island. We've also had a lot of activity in the Vancouver market. And I'm just going to give a quick uh, summary Please here do. of, of kind of what's going on. We'll start with the detached on the west side. It is a seller's market right up to $3.5 million. So and it's busy over bent. there, right? You were at an open house uh, last week and you said it was what, lined up down the 70, street. 70 groups through at a <laughs> house. I mean, priced competitively for sure, uh, multiple offer type scenario, but... Um, 70 groups coming through over the course of the weekend. And you can imagine it's a pain because you got to have um, spaced out the intervals. Yeah, so that right. Everybody has to wait to, to go in. Minutes, so right? there's actually literally a lineup uh, around the block. And, and that lineup is there for a long time because you got people spending, you know, 10 minutes inside the house, right? Yeah. So it, it's an interesting time, but uh, that market's been busy. The most active price band on the west side for detach is still very much kind of the entry level um, options at two point two five to two point five million dollars. Of course, yeah. um, in that market, half of the homes are selling. It's basically a fifty percent sales ratio, um, which is which is crazy. It's a very very busy market. Um, looking at the attached on the west side, uh, a seller's market up to one point two five million. Kits again is the front runner. Kits is on fire yeah. right now. Um, one out of every two homes is selling in Kitsilano. Uh, super busy market again. Yeah, I feel like Kits for the last. 
maybe close to a year, year and a half seems to just be going bananas. But but what's going on on the east side? So on the east side, in the detached market, right up to $2.5 million is a seller's market. So, I mean, that's it's right across the board. It was a lot of the times we've talked about uh, activity in, in the detached market. We were kind of talking more entry mid-level. And now, I mean, like really right up to new construction, higher end homes on the east side. Right. Stuff's turning over. Um, we've got Fraser is at 60% sales ratio, or as some people call it, Fraser Hood. Right. I'm, the not, hood. I'm not one of those the hood, people. The but, Fraser, uh, yeah. <laughs> I still call it Fraser. Um, but anyways, it is a 60% sales ratio. Um, Main Street, 93% sales ratio. Just Stuff just bananas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you've got a house in the Main Street uh, corridor. You are, are sitting pretty. I was uh, at an inspection the other day uh, with an inspector, a very good inspector uh, that we speak to a lot, uh, Darren Larder. And he was yeah. saying he was he inspected a home, a pre-inspection Main Street corridor a few days ago. There was another inspector there at the same time. There was two pre-inspections uh, the day before as well. Right. So that's at least four pre-inspections uh, for that house. Crazy times. Crazy times on the Main Street corridor for single family. For sure. Crazy time for single family all across the board. Um, attached in East Vancouver, it's a seller's market up to $1.5 million. Um, super busy. Uh, and, you know, a lot of townhomes getting absorbed. People looking for more space, I think, is a lot of what's driving this. Cheap rates. Well, yeah. And I just had somebody get a 1.79. And that was an uninsured mortgage. Uh, wow. So, yeah. I mean... Most rates are coming in with a one as the first yeah, number, right? Yeah, so, exactly. And then moving over to the attached market on the east side, we have a seller's market up to 1.5 million, homes selling on average a 100% of their list price. So again, even the attached market in East Van, really, really busy right now. A lot of townhomes getting absorbed, half duplexes getting absorbed. It generally speaking... Not a, not a lot of room for negotiation there. Well, <laughs> there's not. And But you know what? Pe- there's still opportunities, of course, but people are generally... I think looking for more space, looking to capitalize on low interest rates. And uh, there's a lot of activity in the market. Last but not least, we got to talk about downtown. Yeah, let's talk about downtown. Yeah, so downtown uh, is the most interesting of of the lot in Vancouver's proper, right? Yeah. Because it's a balanced market almost across the board. Um, Moderate seller's market in, in, in some price bands and, and even buyers, a buyer's market in other price bands as you get higher up in your purchase. Well, I feel like for years we said, you know, think about the Vancouver real estate market, uh, like a pond where you drop the rock in downtown and it kind of waves out from there. Right. Sure. Um, and, and now it feels like if you had to say just Vancouver proper specifically, downtown is, is the area that feels slower than almost uh, any other of the kind of surrounding areas uh, around downtown. Sure, but so but picture okay. So picture yourself being a historian now in thirty years. Okay, and you're looking back, and you're you're first of all you've got the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> figured out, and you're trying to find the book on Vancouver real estate in the year 2020, right? right? And you want to see what the impact of COVID nineteen is on the market. Do these stats not tell? A, a story that seems quite accurate here. There, there's been it's what I would say is that a lot of the predictions uh, early on ha- seem to have come true, and and if anything, are growing right now, right? So, like, there seems like like fear, perhaps, of maybe vertical living. Yeah, um, density is is uh, not uh, of the day. Right, right. Downtown right now is not looking its best. 
Some might argue Sam Sullivan specifically. <laughs> there's, <laughs> a lot of, again, there's a lot of crime. There's a lot of crime going on. Uh, there's there's some of the pain points in this city are are now uh, more visible than ever. I feel like the fissures are now fractures. Yes, yes. Well, well put. And as you start to go across the lower mainland, you're starting to see people looking for space. They don't mind. They can work from home. They don't have to commute. But then on top of that, though. Like these Sunshine Coast numbers, these Bowen Island numbers, presumably what what's happening. I I know that there's a lot of activity right now um, in this in the detached market in areas like Victoria and stuff. This is right. kind of I think COVID has kind of forced people's hands to pull back and say, let's reevaluate. Like right. let's look inwards and try and figure out where we're gonna what we're gonna do in our lives. Right. And the uh, the big question here is how long does this last? Right. I mean, is this something where we'll be talking about five, seven, ten years from now and saying, yeah, I mean, that was it. We sort of had a shift in direction that continued on, or will it be kind of a, a year or two blip? Well, there's this there's this thing that I've been doing where I just I keep thinking that things are going to go back to how they were at some point. Right. And then the the, the things that we were excited about before – urban centers, vibrant urban centers, hugging each other and uh, going to crowded nightclubs in Yaletown, yep. whatever, things that we used to do all the time right. around here at the yeah. Vancouver Real Estate A lot, Real lot of hugging at, at, of, at nightclubs. At nightclubs specifically. <laughs> um, I can't even remember the last time I've been to a nightclub. Uh, or Last anyone. week, no mask. <laughs> no, just kidding. No. Um, anyways, no, but this is, this is the thing. I don't know if it will go back to normal. And the reason I say that is because there's all these studies now saying that that a, comp- a lot of companies are realizing that people are more productive working from home, which is shocking to me because I'm I'm not one that. of those people. I, still don't I know, that. well, but yeah, so that's what I I'm, feel like you and I are actually um, uh, in that debate, though. I feel like we keep shouting that, and everybody else keeps going, "Oh yeah, whatever," and and then they go no. back to just believing that they're more productive. Well, no, but you know what it is though? Is there actually, yeah, like I was talking to a woman the other day, her, her, her firm has been, has been analyzing the data and they think that if people are more productive at home because people feel guilty, I think, and they work longer. Oh, right. There's no boundaries. The boundaries are gone. The boundaries. Yeah. They'll, they'll take an email at nine o'clock or a call or whatever, which is kind of horrible for probably burnout and mental health yeah. and all those things. Everyone's just turned into a realtor. Netflix at lunch. Yeah, but but work <laughs> at Netflix time. <laughs> that's the thing. That's yeah. So I don't. Everything's been flipped on its head. But I I don't know. My point is is that will things go back to the trends that they were at, or or has this created a fundamental shift in our thinking and the way we work and operate as a society? Where we're going to see people like I don't think the city's going to die. I I think it's far from no. that. But I I do think that. You know, it's 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 not surprising. I think people will want more space, almost in anticipation of if something like this happens again. It'll be like stacking money under your mattress in the Great Depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? And and that's actually a, a useful way to think about it, right? That the grandma that made you finish everything because because how it was in 1933. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but one last thought here, because where I see uh, the weakness in the market is. And we've talked about this uh, before as well, is it's kind of not only we're sort of thinking about this almost entirely from an end user perspective, but investors have really, really 
stopped looking for real estate in the last six months. Like that is the other thing. And and I feel like that there's so much investor activity in downtown and the surrounding areas. And when with rents on the decline, first of all, like cash flow was tough in Vancouver eight months ago. It's sure. it's worse now. Right. So there's, so there's that kind of factor. And then just the uncertainty around actually being able to cash rent checks. It's, it's really shifted the, uh, I mean, a wait and see approach is, is an understatement for a lot of those investors. Um, and, and that kind of component of the market is, is just feels really, I mean, that's almost half the market downtown in my, in my experience. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's just, I'm just thinking about that as well. It's like we've removed a huge segment of the buying public as well. So these numbers look even even more accurate to the predictions of six months ago, but just laying, around, laying on another uh, component here. Yeah, and you know what? Well, the rental market is getting clobbered right now. Yeah. And uh, it's it's really tough, especially for landlords that only have a couple doors where if, if they're losing a tenant right now, it's going to be probably really hard to recreate the rent you were getting a year or two ago. And I don't think a lot of people that, that don't haven't had to lease a place recently – have realized that like there's a lot of people that have reached out and said you know should i be increasing my rent right now yeah uh you know asking and and i mean of course we're not property managers but i would think long and hard about uh uh, you don't want to lose you want to accommodate your tenant right now right that's absolutely um for sure but so i mean it's it is an interesting time what do you buy if you're if you're looking in the rental market i'm buying something with a den i'm buying something (laughs) well this is i we just i just had this conversation yesterday morning about, um, you know, used to be uh, cheap and cheerful, get the smallest unit possible. I feel like most of the people that I've helped purchase in the last six months who were renting before are almost exclusively looking for 650, and they're usually couples, but 650 plus. Right. And they need either a smaller two bed or a uh, or, or a one in den, and the den has to be like not like oh, it's ex- internal storage. It has to be For sure. a place where they can work from home. So I feel like if that's on the on the real estate side, on the on the purchasing side, undoubtedly the rental market's moving that way at least for the short term, and that could be a long term trend, right? I'm I'm not sure the studio is is necessarily uh, what I'd be looking for right now. And so I guess just to kind of recap here, if you are someone that owns a property right now, whether you own it and live in it or you own it as a rental and it has many rooms, decent square footage, good outdoor space, uh, and a front door, yeah, you're, you're probably um, in a good spot. You're in a good spot. And, and the other thing is, is that I was, I was talking to somebody whose tenant was leaving the other day and the tenant was looking for more space. It was a couple. Uh, in a one bedroom, they needed more space. They were both working from home, I guess, going going a little bit crazy. But what this landlord pointed out that the tenant told them, which I thought was actually an interesting point, is they're not leaving their place as much. They're not mm-hmm. spending as much money. They yeah. have more money for rent, right? That's right. the other thing, right? If you have X amount of money for rent, but you're eating out at lunch every day, you're tra- commuting downtown, and now you're at home, well, suddenly you got a couple hundred bucks more for rent sure. if required for that extra space that's going to make your life better. Exactly, exactly. And Matt, we've been talking for a while. So I was going to say it was a bit of an impromptu conversation. Why don't, why don't we, uh, why don't we uh, chat about our sponsor this week and last week and hopefully next week, Oakland Realty. That's right, Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage here in Vancouver, one of the top 
200 growing companies in Canada, which is an yeah. incredible thing. I, I put it on on the culture, great culture, really focused on education and knowledge there, uh, not to mention just a really nice group of people. Head over to oakwind.com slash join, type in VRP 2020 if you want to find out more about what Oakwind's doing. This is, of course, for agents, aspiring agents, uh, seasoned agents, people looking to make a change. Oakwind.com slash join VRP 2020. Tell them we sent you. There's a huge incentive uh, specifically for uh, members of the VRP community. Yeah, they're big on alliteration. They call it the Scalina Surprise. It's a it's a huge one. <laughs> It's like uh, it's like your it's like your waist waistline. It's a, it's a surprise. Huge surprise. Here's my big waistline. Yeah, it's, it's a huge <laughs> surprise. It's Matt's belt. Uh, and and then two things more before we get to our really good conversation with Emily. Uh, one is some some listeners probably remember uh, some months past we we were calling out people uh we were looking to to grow our team uh we we put you know oakland has oakland university we have the vancouver real estate podcast university it's basically a three-month grinding program for any one of the successful candidates yeah Uh, we have a recent graduate even though she's been in real estate more than a decade she was through this grinding process and ava benasaki is a new member of our team and we just wanted to shout out we're going to bring uh, her to on. ava she'll be on the show yeah. um but yeah it's it's great to have ava on the team um and yeah look for her on the show for sure absolutely matt i wonder if the huge surprise is your ego just in a box <laughs> surprise <laughs> surprise <laughs> but without further ado let's cut to our interview with emily hamilton enjoy Okay, so we're here with Emily Hamilton, Director of the Urbanity Project and Research Fellow at Mercatus Center, George Mason University. How are you doing, Emily? Doing well. How are you doing? Very well. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time today, Emily. Thank you. It's great to be talking with you. So so can you maybe start by telling uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a housing economist at the Mercatus Center. And I work primarily on regulatory issues that are standing in the way of more housing being built at lower costs um, in order to allow more people to live in the locations where they want to live, um, in types of neighborhoods that match their preferences, and where their own best opportunities are located. Uh, Right now, lots of regulations are, are standing in the way of more of the type of housing that people want from being built, uh, particularly in some of the highest cost parts of the United States. And it's causing huge problems, um, both for individuals who are struggling to afford housing and for the country as a whole, because when people can't live where they would like to, that often means that they are not making the type of economic contributions that they'd be able to if they were able to afford housing where they would like to live. Interesting, interesting. So um, part of the reason we wanted to bring you on, Emily, is because you recently wrote an article called Want More Housing? Ending Single-Family Zoning Won't Do It. And and this was published in uh, in Bloomberg City Lab. Why did you write this article? Yeah, I, I wrote it because there's been a big emphasis in the U.S. on um, ending single-family zoning, which is 
absolutely something I would would stand behind. I don't think there's there's any reason not to allow people to live in uh, denser housing configurations if they would like to. Uh, but there's been so much focus on single family zoning that some of the other land use regulations that are also standing in the way of more lower cost housing, I don't think are getting the attention that they need. Uh, in a lot of parts of the U.S., uh, and I think in, in Canada as well, there are really large minimum lot size requirements. And so thinking about, um, you know, a, a duplex or a fourplex on a, a two-acre lot or something is, is just kind of silly. It's, it's not a housing configuration that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and then in some of the places where there has been reform on the single-family zoning issue, Minneapolis, um, most famously with it, its 2019 abolition of single-family zoning, there haven't been reforms to go along with that to make it easier to build more units on a single lot. So prior to 2019, Minneapolis had many lots where only a detached single-family house would have been allowed. And now triplexes are allowed. But most of the land area um, that was previously single-family zoning has a height limit below three stories. So that right there rules out um, something like triple-deckers, which we see a lot of in New England, where you have three units that are all good-sized stacked right on top of each other. Then additionally, um, there are setback requirements and floor area ratio constraints in Minneapolis that I think may make it difficult uh, to build triplexes, even though they are now allowed. Uh, and in fact, it's been close to a year now that triplexes have been permitted, and so far only three have been permitted. Now, of course, that's, that's a short time in the world of real estate development and there's a pandemic going on. So things may get much better down the road. But I think so far, it's been a little bit disappointing um, how difficult it still may be to build triplexes in Minneapolis. Yeah, that's really interesting because we've had a lot of, uh, I feel like we've had past guests on that, um, you know, there's a there's a abundant housing Vancouver organization here, and we've had them on the show uh, previously, and and they're calling for basically the the same thing that happened in Minneapolis, the abolition of of single family zoning here in Vancouver, um, and and that was really celebrated. But it sounds like there's been there's there's a bunch of kind of hidden uh, regulatory measures at work here that make it very hard to to do uh, much else than single family zoning. That's right. And and to be clear, I think there's a lot to celebrate among um, Minneapolis policymakers and activists who got through what's still a, a radical change to allow the city to accommodate more people in a, a denser housing typology. Uh, but this very narrow focus on single family zoning obscures some of the, the other regulations that make um, denser types of housing still difficult to build. 
And, and I'm always kind of curious, um, and it's, it's one of those questions that might be difficult to answer, but, um, you know, after reading, you know, I was one of these guys that celebrated uh, this move in Minneapolis as well. Uh, but after reading your, your argument here, your piece, it, it seems so obvious. Like, why, why would the, I guess, why in your mind would they focus on, on the zoning when, when there's all sorts of regulations that basically make it a moot point? Like, was that just an oversight or is it to kind of appease uh, NIMBYs in Minneapolis or that's more of a cynical read? But, but why do you think they overlooked that, <laughs> that all, all the regulatory constraints? I think there are a couple reasons. Uh, in the U.S., single-family zoning has a very ugly racist history as, as being a policy that the Federal Housing Administration suggested that localities should implement in order to keep their neighborhoods segregated because the federal government felt that it would be safer to insure mortgages in neighborhoods that were uh, white only. And they thought that single family zoning would help achieve that in the neighborhoods where they wanted to insure mortgages. So, you know, with a, a history like that, absolutely, we should be getting rid of, of these rules um, that continue to have racist effects today. Um, but then to your point about it being kind of a, a compromise, uh, city council members in Minneapolis very much sold this reform as something that wouldn't really change the look of Minneapolis neighborhoods from the outside. Um, there was a, a, a quote from a, a politician there that was something like, it's the same box, that single family house, but now it can accommodate three households rather than one. Um, but where we see lots of infill development, it's often not the same box. It's, it's a larger box that's now accommodating um, more households. Um, there are certainly exceptions. Uh, brownstone neighborhoods, for example, can be uh, chopped up into apartments and it can, can work really well there. But in a lot of cases, especially when we're talking about detached single-family houses on large lots, it makes more sense to build a, a larger structure to accommodate more units rather than just chopping up what's there into smaller units. Do, do you think, um, you know, I guess backing up here, like we've been doing this podcast for the last five years or so, and I feel like in, in Vancouver specifically, and I guess uh, more generally in North America, there's always this push and pull argument around supply and demand. Um, do you think cities generally are overregulated? Or to put it another way, is the, is the solution here, like I, I, and we'd love to hear more about Houston, which you use as an example, but is the solution kind of open things up, let, let, builders, let builders build, uh, less regulation, market-based solutions type thing? Uh, th- that's my opinion, yes. I, I think cities are, are very much overregulated. It's um, too difficult to get new um, new housing proposals approved in many cases. Uh, and also just the, the rules on the book don't allow um, enough housing to be built for many of the regions where people most want to live. Um, and direct housing 
construction, often to the most expensive type of detached single-family housing, rather than allowing uh, denser, lower-cost, more walkable types of development to be built easily. And when we look at um, within the U.S. of the cities that are less regulated, um, Texas cities in particular have been very welcoming of growth and housing construction relative to coastal cities in the U.S. Um, and they have uh, experienced extremely rapid population growth while uh, generally remaining um, relatively affordable, in many cases more affordable than the median house price in the U.S. Just just thinking about Texas, maybe, um, you know, so like what, where has Houston really got it right as a city? Well, Texas cities generally are thought of for their um, new greenfield development, and they certainly do plenty of that. Um, but if we look at the, the large cities in Texas, they also permit lots of large um, multifamily projects and townhouses as well. And Houston is a really interesting case of a reform designed to permit more infill development. In 1999, the city um, reduced its minimum lot size from 5,000 square feet down to effectively 1,400 square feet. And that has uh, a similar effect as moving from single-family zoning to triplex zoning, because now three houses can be built where just one was um, permitted previously. And this has led to some, some cool infill townhouses um, in Houston, especially in the neighborhoods closest to downtown. Um, and Houston uh, is, a, is a really interesting case because it's never had use zoning. Um, it does have land use regulations that we would typically see in the zoning ordinances of, of other localities. So lot sizes, obviously, uh, parking requirements, um, other, other restrictions on density. But not having use zoning means that um, townhouses in many cases have replaced single family houses, uh, but they've also um, been built in some industrial areas where housing was now a, a better use of land rather than industrial. So that's, that's a whole area of housing restrictions, use of zoning, that Houston has just never had. That, that's different from Minneapolis or lots of other cities. And, and just to be clear, when you say use zoning, like it sounds like Houston, you can literally just use land for whatever you want. <laughs> yes. Am I getting that right? <laughs> yes, they don't have... Yeah, they don't have um, residential or commercial or industrial. Yes, definitely. And that's been put to a vote in Houston three times and voted down all three times. So potentially you could just just to kind of play this out um, on a residential street in the suburbs, if somebody wanted to build a Shooting auto, range. Yeah, or an auto an auto body shop. Right. Like they could put that in the middle of the block and and if it works, it works and, and that's just the way it goes. Yeah, they could. And there are definitely a few instances of um of uses next to each other that you wouldn't expect to see in Houston. But on the whole, in terms of um 
patterns of where industrial uses are located, it doesn't look much different than other, um, you know, relatively newly developed Sunbelt cities that are, are very car oriented, like Houston. So we see land prices doing a lot of the, the work of determining where different uses are located that um, that zoning codes are doing in other places. And presumably also like if there's commercial districts or where more businesses are, you would likely want to put a business close to other businesses. There's the contours of, yeah, like like (laughs) market forces, the streams that create these flows that make sense, I guess, where you wouldn't do something too radical. But just thinking about Houston as well here, like Houston – you know, reminds me at least, and I have never been to Houston, but it reminds me of cities in Canada, like say Calgary, where where there's a lot of sprawl. It's kind of a more more of a car culture than say a city like Vancouver or or San Francisco. Um, like it sounds like your your idea of uh, of of density actually is kind of more walkable, more dense um, neighborhoods, uh, that I think a lot of us, uh, like to live in. Um, does that kind of just wide open market approach lead to, to sprawl in, in your mind in places like Houston? Has that contributed? Great question. Um, so first off, I I definitely agree, um, with your premise that a lot of, of people prefer denser, more walkable neighborhoods and that people with those preferences are currently underserved. Uh, I've done some research on the price premium for more walkable neighborhoods in the U.S., and I find that people um, pay more to live in more walkable parts of regions, um, holding lots of other things constant. And I think that's due to land use regulations that, number one, make it really difficult to build new walkable neighborhoods, and number two, tend to make it really difficult to add housing to neighborhoods that are already walkable. I I don't necessarily think that a a more market-driven outcome prevents walkability uh, because if we look at um, older cities that are, are often where the most walkable neighborhoods are located, those were very much built without zoning, certainly, and right. in many cases with hardly any land use regulations at all. But uh, in, in the context of, of cars being, you know, so much, so much more prevalent, the way so many people get around today, I think it's, it's not realistic to expect something like lower Manhattan to be built from scratch today. But Houston, for example, has has lots of government interventions that have shaped what it looks like, even though it doesn't have youth zoning. So it has high parking um, requirements, for example, although there have been some recent reforms to get rid of parking requirements there in some neighborhoods. But its, its development pattern is very much shaped by high parking requirements, uh, as well as, of course, tons of, of highway buildings which um, both makes it difficult to make pleasant, walkable neighborhoods um, in in more central locations, uh, but also very much subsidizes people who want to live um, in, in farther flung, less walkable parts of the region, but still drive into downtown. Really interesting. So, so Emily, um, 
One of the things we've kind of been talking about on the podcast, and we've had lots of, of planners on over time, um, and, and talking about just what seems to be an incredible demand to live in urban centers. And, and obviously recently with COVID, we've kind of watched that, that notion kind of be turned on its head a bit, um, just with people, at least in our marketplace, um, kind of leaving the downtown core in a lot of cases, um, buying further out, getting more space, um, especially now that they can work from home, they don't have to commute. Um, and we're also seeing like recre- recreation resort towns kind of booming right now um, outside of the Vancouver region. Is this a trend that, that you guys, is it on your radar? Is it something that you're considering? Is, is it something that you're monitoring in the U.S.? It, it seems at least as well, just to piggyback on what Adam's saying, like New York City, I feel like the New York Times has reported on this a bunch that everybody's leaving the, the down, city. The yeah. city, yeah. And do you think this is, and, and just as a follow-up, do you think this is kind of a short lived um, circumstance or, or do you see buying buying habits or, or where people prefer to live uh, actually changing as a result of COVID? That's a question that's definitely on my radar, but I don't don't know um, if these the short-term trends will be long-lasting or not. Um, certainly, Lots of high-income people are are leaving um, New York City for you know the Hamptons or <laughs> wherever they right. they might be able to afford a house. Similarly, in the U.S., um, like mountain towns are seeing tons of of new demand for housing there. I think that it's likely that trends we were already seeing um, in terms of of more people working remotely and working for themselves from home will likely be accelerated by COVID. Um, People who, you know, may have been pretty averse to doing video calls or otherwise working remotely have been forced to get more comfortable with those technologies and, um, and carry out their jobs in that way. So it's likely that some people and, and some firms who would not have been open to remote work previously have changed their stance on that permanently, I think. But in terms of how big that transition will be, I think it's very much unknown. Uh, I'm very much a believer in, in cities and think that the, the innovation and chance meetings between people who work, um, you know, at maybe different firms in the same industry or in complementary industries um, and face-to-face communication are really key to particularly lots of of knowledge sector jobs. And I I don't think that that can fully be replicated online, but, you know, it's a, a very unprecedented situation and I you know wouldn't want to bet money on uh, on any certain uh, outcome although actually I do have a bet out on uh, <laughs> on what will happen to uh, rent in New York uh, three years from now oh. so uh, you can uh, wow. wait wait we'd love to <laughs> first off how much and what was the bet <laughs> you don't have to say how much but or what, what was your uh, what are you what are you betting on uh, my my uh, claim is that um, real rent, uh, median rent in New York City 
will be um, the same or higher in three years than it is today. So we'll see. <laughs> Interesting. In the context, uh, of course, for those listening who haven't been following rents in New York, but I think it's it's similar to to Vancouver and 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 Toronto here in Canada, is that in the last six six months, vacancy rates have of course increased, and and the rents are actually are down um, this year. Correct? Yes, that's right. Wow. And, you know, it's interesting because we were, I was just speaking to a property manager yesterday, um, who downtown Vancouver for the same one bedroom had to drop the price 25% of, from what they were getting wow. this time last year. So substantial decreases in, in rents kind of throughout the city core right now. So certainly. Yeah. And, and from what I've seen, it seems to be that, um, high end, you know, newer, fancier buildings are seeing the largest declines um, with with less of a movement uh, among lower cost, older buildings. But yeah, we'll we'll see. I could I could very well be wrong and lose that bet. Is uh, it's well, no, it's but it's an interesting. I. I I think I'd go with you on that one, but uh, not that it, it matters all that much. But uh, hopefully, you win win your money on that. Uh, so, so we're we're um, we before we went live, we we just uh, talked. With the the first presidential election uh, happened last night, and we we kind of briefly touched on that. Uh, I guess just as a jumping off point, you you mentioned you were watching it with hopes that. Uh, housing would be mentioned. Um, I think Canada and and the U.S. are are similar in that the the major, especially coastal cities, but I guess Toronto uh, would be thrown in there. Have have faced increasing housing costs for you know the last decade at least. It's become really almost untenable. Uh, are you are you optimistic that this missing middle will actually emerge in the next? Uh, in the next, say, 5, 10, 15 years? Like, are we going to get this right? Can we make these reforms? And uh, and presumably there was no... I don't think I heard anything about housing at the, at the, at the federal level. So uh, I think it's more of a municipal uh, approach has to be taken anyway. But what are your thoughts there? I'm much more optimistic now than I was several years ago. Um, when I When I first started working on urban policy issues, it seems so clear to me that homeowners have so much influence at the the local level, especially those who are vehemently opposed to change uh, relative to renters who you know may not even live in the jurisdiction where they want to because they can't afford it, who are are unrepresented in um, in local politics. Um, but seeing some of the reforms uh, at both the state and the local level in the U.S. have made me much more optimistic. And, and in Vancouver with, um, with the, the laneway houses, as a, another example of policymakers recognizing that housing affordability is a, a growing burden for their constituents and being willing to take steps um, that may be controversial, may not be you know, universally liked um, moves to make more housing at lower prices easier to build. Uh, within the U.S., I'm, I'm especially optimistic about states stepping in and setting limits on the extent to which their localities can stand in the way of housing. 
Um, California has been a real leader on that front, likely because they have the most uh, severe housing affordability problems in the U.S., but there has been a, a lot of energy at the state level, not just in California, but in, in several states across the U.S., uh, proposing and in some cases passing legislation that's setting limits on things like single-family zoning, on um, bans against accessory dwelling units, and making it uh, easier to build, particularly those um, missing middle, gentle density types types of um, solutions. And maybe as a as a final question, Emily, like not to put too fine a point on it here, but for places like California, where the state seems to be taking a more active role, um, like can can we just talk a little bit about what is at risk? Uh, if we don't, if we don't get this right in in certain areas of North America, where where housing has just become, you know, uh, off uh, out of the realm of the possible for so many people. Yeah, in California, there are lots of of small municipalities that are just incredibly wealthy, and and their their residents and their politicians may be fine with the status quo. You know, they, they see everyone around them who's affluent and doing well and securely housed. But then um, there's just this extreme disparity when we go to, um, to nearby jurisdictions where homelessness rates are reaching new heights all the time. Um, and, and so many um, people who are renters or owners are just incredibly burdened by the amount of their income that they have to spend to remain housed each month. Uh, and, and California has already lost some major employers to lower cost states because these employers, you know, obviously since they located in, in California, that was their their first choice. But as they're they're having more trouble uh, attracting and retaining employees because of the insane cost of housing. They're saying, you know, let's relocate to Texas or Colorado or, or somewhere where our employees um, can have a, a better quality of life because they won't be having to spend so much of their income on housing. And it's it's possible that if California isn't able to get its housing affordability problems under control, this could cause serious problems for state and local governments down the road because things like um, public employee pension systems depend on um, a certain level of population and population growth in order to have enough revenue to continue funding them. If California were to see large population losses, it would mean serious trouble for um, their their fiscal condition. Mm-hmm. Well, well, maybe we'll leave it there, Emily. But how can how can people find out more about what you're doing, and also, of course, the the Mercatus Center? Uh, uh, yeah, most of my research is available at Mercatus. That's M E R C A T U S dot org, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'll always um, tweet out new new op eds or studies that I have. And my handle is EBW Hamilton. And we'll also, of course, link to uh, your article that caught our attention, Want More Housing, Ending Single Family 
zoning won't do it in Bloomberg City Lab, which was which was a really interesting read. And yeah, great conversation. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It was great talking with you. Yeah, and enjoy the rest of the debates. Ooh. Oh gosh! <laughs> I was going to say I'm not even sure what's worth <laughs> being on Twitter or or watching the debates, but <laughs> try watching oh, the debates while on Twitter. The same time, yeah, the same yeah. time is the answer. <laughs> it's like the companion piece. Yeah, no kidding. Sucker for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, Emily. Thank you. You So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Emily Hamilton, the director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Really enjoyed that conversation with uh, Emily, Matt, and uh, always uh, always insightful to have somebody who's kind of uh, looking into planning and density, because uh, obviously that's a pain point in the city of Vancouver. A pain point here, a pain point across North America, and uh, and it's it's... I, what I really liked about this was there's two things really. One is that she's looking at different cities and how they're approaching it, and and how we can learn from each other, right? right. Uh, as as one kind of interesting takeaway there. And the second, places like Minneapolis, I remember when they rezoned the entire city at once, and it was like, bam, housing crisis over. And sure. of course, Emily's saying uh, not not so fast, not so simple. Uh, those are kind of big splashy wins, but uh, but the devil's in the details. I I want to know, like anyone who's visited Japan, like one thing I remember about Tokyo is that there do not seem to be any zoning requirements. I remember you saying whatsoever. That. Yeah. It's like the buildings are there's like super tall buildings on really tiny lots, and then there's also like uh, encroachments everywhere and buildings that touch. And uh, it's it's just bizarre, but I, I I know that they've relaxed zoning significantly as well. Um, it would be interesting to talk to somebody about Japan as well. Well, let's let's make that happen. Yeah, we should make that happen. But uh, what else do we got for the day? Oh, and you should have asked Emily more about uh, U.S. politics. Because, you know what we uh, did? Well, we our asked, Van we... Pauly podcast. <laughs> yeah, we did. We uh, we did. This is interesting because she lives in Washington D.C. and we just said to her before we went live, like. What's life like right now? Like, yeah. I feel like they, you can almost you can you can feel the tension coming over the border, and uh, I think specifically she said Black Lives Matter. Like those protests were the city was just like I don't know. God, talk about anxiety. Right. Uh, it must be it must be brutal. And of course the and the debates. The and debates the... are tonight. Vice presidential debates are tonight. So we got uh, Pence versus Harris. Right. This is gonna be this is gonna be a good one. And SNL is back in studio. That's right. Uh, That's right. And did you see uh, the Jim Carrey skit uh, as uh, as Joe Biden? I did. I did. Yeah. Alrighty then. So what else do we have for today, Matt? We got a few things. One, we didn't even talk about the Sellers Club in the intro. I feel like we got so into so deep into the, this conversation about uh, changes in the housing market that we forgot about the most exclusive new club in all of Vancouver. That's the V Rep Sellers Club. No mask required. This is an incredible club. It will take you back to the old days of seventies uh, disco clubs. That's right. This um, is like uh, what is that club called? Uh, club 54. Club 54. This is, but this, this is, is the new normal. Yeah, this is a great club to be a part of. It is the Sellers Club. At the Sellers Club, you get the best resources for selling your home for top dollar in the shortest amount of time. It'll make you feel like you're partying with a couple of rock stars. Because in reality, you are. That's right. You are. And these are actionable plans, right? This isn't wishy-washy stuff. This is taking you from A to Z to get your property sold 
for top dollar in the shortest amount of time. You want to be a member of the Sellers Club. There's no question about it. Last but not least, we have private client services. And this, of course, is at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Yeah, Matt, because if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information. It's free. It's at your fingertips. It is the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver. Trust me, we have looked at every way to look. And this is just, it's the simplest. It's the simplest. It's the best. You get realtor-level information it's there is no reason why you shouldn't be using private client services. If you want to talk about that, zoning, selling, U.S. politics, whatever, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And if you want to talk about SNL, give, give me a call, <laughs> 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And that's a line if you want to talk turkey, tofurkey. Oh, right. Yeah. It's Thanksgiving. Vegan jerky. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's vegan jerky. Yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll talk about all of his best-kept vegan Thanksgiving treats. <laughs> and he's a meat eater. But yeah. <laughs> uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and we'll be back next week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join. 
type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join typing in VRP 2020.